Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome, everyone. I'm Jason Jordans, your host here at the Leaders Table podcast, where it is our job to dissect leaders in policy and education, to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to help empower you. Now, today's guest, Jim Shelton, is former Deputy Secretary for Education at the U.S. Department of Education. Also, he was the founding executive director of President Obama's My Brother's Keeper Initiative, and most recently joined Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg as President of Education for the Chan-Zuckerberg Initiative. Now, our conversation with Jim spans innovation and technology-based learning, how the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is gearing up to invest, and lots and lots of leadership insight, including Jim's personal advice on how to know when to quit a job. We hope you get as much out of this conversation as we did. And now, with no further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Jim Shelton at the Leader's Table. Jim Shelton, thank you for joining the Leaders Table. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, Jim, you are your resume is virtually synonymous with educational um, innovation. So today, you lead the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative's education effort efforts as president of education. In uh, your prior post, you've been a, a deputy secretary for for education at the U.S. Department of Education, where you uh, you manage a portfolio including policy and management. You manage some of the DOE's competitive programs, such as investing in the Vest, investing in education fund, the Primus Neighborhood program and others focus on teacher and leader quali- uh, equality. You also are founding executive director of, of President Obama's My Brother's Keeper Initiative. You've spent time at the Gates Foundation, um, spent time in the private sector. Um, just really excited to to dive into all things education and innovation with you today. Excited to be here. So let me start by sharing a quote from you. So you, you've said, when it comes to educational improvements, we need to remember that it's about the ecosystem. In order for us to get it to work, lots of other things need to happen. Many different things in the edu- ecosystem need to come together. The ecosystem has actually worked to thwart innovation in education today. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, you know, education sits in the context. In the end, um, really education, the heart of education is about learning and about teaching. Um, but in order for great learning and teaching that has to happen, many other things need to be in place. Uh, the resources for um, learners to learn and teachers to be able to teach well have to be in place. Uh, clear goals and milestones, otherwise known as standards, have to be in place. Uh, 
um, the kind of laws that and policies that create flexibility and freedom for people to do the kind of education that works for kids and to pursue things that work has to have to be in place. Um, all of these things have to come together in order for what works to win inside uh, the education sector. And um, oftentimes, whether it's um, cumbersome procurement rules or it's overly burdensome um, rules and regulations or whether it's misaligned standards or poor training for teachers or lack of flexibility for students to learn in the way they learn best, many things have gotten in the way of young people being able to do their best work and teachers being able to do their best teaching. Um, in the end, that's what innovation is about. How do you get much better, much faster, and get it to many more people? And if those other things aren't right, they get in the way. But why why is edu- have educational institutions been um, not synonymous with innovation specifically? Is it a lack of leadership? Is it that we are uh, living out a system that was designed for a different time? Are there economic barriers? What are, what are the things that are most in the way? Yeah, unfortunately, I wish it was just one. Um, and so let me just define innovation really quickly because I think it's important that we don't confuse two things. Um, I think there has been tremendous invention in education. People are creating new things all the time. Teachers are inside their classrooms doing really magical work and finding things that work for students that people thought would never be successful. Um, But there's another part of taking the invention to innovation, which is that it scales to serve many more people. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, even the best uh, things that teachers are doing in classrooms or students figure out how to do on their own, they don't make it down the hallway, let alone school to school or state to state, um, and go to scale. So when we want to say we want to really create systems of innovation, we have to create things that are much better than what we do today, but they also have to reach and change the lives of millions of people. Now, in many sectors, when you look at it, there's a whole system that's built to do that, right? Um, and you look at health, there's a tremendous amount of investment in research and development to produce the next generation of, of, of cures. Those things transpire over decades, and there's a system by which those things that are discovered in basic science are turned into products or practices that actually then change people's lives. Um, there's a whole set of investors that think about how to take those new new developments and help the entrepreneurs or the companies that have developed them and get them to into the hands of practitioners, be they doctors or nurses or clinicians or emergency service workers. Um, those people inside those organizations have sophisticated apparatus for purchasing things so that they can get the tools that they need when they need them and get them to the patients who need them most. And most importantly, they have really specific tools for diagnosing their patients so they can get them just the right kind of intervention, not using the wrong tool or the wrong medicine for the wrong uh, disease. Um, Mm -hmm. That's an analog for how you would hope many parts of the education system would work, but most of those things aren't true. We don't invest very much in research and development. In fact, there's not much um, uh, research. uh, It's a fraction of a percent of what's spent in most industries. Um, We don't actually have a really great uh, system for identifying what works and what doesn't. And so there are very few things that have a strong evidence base. Um, Our our investors in our sector oftentimes run off of, of, uh, you know, ideology and or uh, word of mouth as opposed to rigorous evidence about what actually works. Um, and the procurement systems inside our, our schools and other places are notoriously difficult to use, especially if you're at the classroom level before a teacher. All those things need to get addressed. 
So, and as I read about um, where your leadership will take the Chan Zuckerberg's Zuckerberg initiatives, work on education, it seems like personalized learning um, and technology-based scalable platforms is at the center of, of some of that work. Can you talk about uh, talk about that work in relation to achievement of educational equity? Sure. So, one of the things that um, that has intrigued me for many years is uh, a body of work by um, uh, Dr. Bloom. And Dr. Bloom had this question, which was, what could children do if you gave them an idolized environment? And his, his um, proxy for an idolized environment was, if I could give every child a one-to-one tutor, someone who knew them really well and met them where they were and gave them exactly what they needed, how well would they do? And what he found out was when he did a controlled study, and he took kids and gave them one-to-one tutors, and he compared them to kids in a normal classroom, that he could take that 50th percentile average kid and have them perform better than 98% of the kids in a normal classroom. And you do that a number of times, and what that says to you is that if you can give kids that kind of individualized attention, then uh, every single kid can almost can start to perform at the very highest levels of performance. That means that it's never the kids. It's all about whether or not we can provide them with those kinds of resources and that kind of quality or approach. And so um, once you believe that, then it becomes a pretty practical question of, well, why don't we just do that? And it's, some people would say that's not a practical question because we can't find all the people and we can't spend all the money. And I would say, uh, and that is hopefully the work that we'll do at Chan Zuckerberg, is that that just becomes a problem to solve. The problem to solve is how can you give kids the equivalent of that kind of learning experience at something that we are willing and able to pay at a price that we are willing to afford to give our students, our children the very best. And the role of technology is that it has, it is not the answer in and of itself, but it has been able to bring that kind of personalized approach to many other sectors and dramatically bring the cost of what used to only be reserved for very few people to many more people. And so when you can scale excellence like that, that is the definition of providing equity. Um, and hopefully, by going through equity, we can get to ultimately equality, which is what the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is all about. And what do you think are the, the pitfalls for those who are, are thinking about the future of the education policy space? Know that, that scalable solutions, that, that technology-driven um, access is, is going to be one of the major touch points of achieving equity. What are, what are the big policy issues that... Um, that you think that all those future leaders need to be thinking about today? So I'll go to the technology piece first because I I think that people have a natural assumption because of who we are that we believe that the technology is the answer in and of itself. And what is true is that technology can change everything, but um, it actually has to be used well. Technology can be used to scale things that are bad as quickly as it can scale things that are good. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, it can scale things that are bad faster than they might normally happen in a normal world. So you have to have a way of ensuring that when you are using technology that things um, are, you are using its capabilities to figure out how things are going all the time as opposed to waiting long periods of time when things might be growing faster than you expect. Um, uh, uh, As importantly, um, the, the role of uh, technology is that it can actually accelerate uh, inequity if, in fact, it does not made available to everyone. 
And so what we have now is um, uh, systems where uh, access to technology means you have a tremendously extended uh, opportunity to learn, um, whether that's at home, whether that's in the community, whether that's accessing research resources that are available around the world. And if we aren't careful in ensuring that kids uh, of all kinds, regardless of their backgrounds, have access to technology, then um, what will happen is that the technology and the improved educational opportunity that it provides will accrue more quickly to those with resources and will actually ex exacerbate inequity. So those are the downsides. Now, here's the upsides. The upsides are that when we are thoughtful about how to use innovation um, and how to use technology, we can very quickly take the things that work to many, many more people at a fraction of the cost. So this is where, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a liberal or if you're a conservative. The idea that you can actually improve outcomes at a lower cost and do it for many more people is both the right thing to do, it's an economically sound thing to do. There are lots of different ways to find win-win solutions when you use innovation to provide the very best that citizens deserve. The second thing I'd say is that, um, actually probably this is probably the third or fourth thing I said, is that um, for policymakers in particular, you have to recognize that the incentive structures that get created by policy drive behavior, and they can drive good behavior or they can drive bad behavior, and you have to think about the second and third order consequences. And so here's the example I want to give um, because I think it's important for policymakers. The United States has one of the most, the best higher education systems in the world to this day. It is looked at and, and recognized by the world as one of the very best. It was created um, in the last century. Uh, we created many pathways in the post-secondary, so we have some of the best access opportunities to post-secondary opportunity in the world today. However, one of the things that the policymakers at that time missed was focusing on access and not focusing on completion. And therefore, our entire incentive system was set up to reward getting kids into school, not making sure they got successfully out. And in fact, whole sectors of the market evolved that realized that they could make a lot of money if they just got kids in and never worried about whether they got out or not. And so we wound up with a portion of the post-secondary market that was serving people that are highly vulnerable, that was taking their money and taking taxpayers' dollars, that ultimately re resulted in um, kids with debt and no graduation, no degree, and no job. Now, I'm not casting aspersions at that entire sector, but what I am saying is that it took incredibly responsible management for those who did not follow the incentives to the easy path to the dollar. And it's incumbent upon policymakers to create incentive structures that make doing the right thing the thing that is aligned with the incentives. Doing the thing that works ought to be the thing that aligns with the incentives. Delivering equity ought to be the thing that aligns with the incentives. And they need to think through how they create systems that do that. You know, listening to you makes me think about uh, policy and unintended consequences. In, in, a, in a talk a few years ago, you said, you, you offered, shared a quote from an un, unknown uh, source. It said, most revolutions end with the people still oppressed by, a same, by the same or a different cruel master. And you go on to say, we need to remember this when we are innovating in education. Is that 
is that what we face in, in this rapid advance or this rapid shift, uh, not just with technology, but with all of the innovations that, um, that are, are being funded, driven, and experimented with in education? Uh, I, think in, I think in society um, is a, the broader issue. Uh, I think in education is just a portion of that. I mean, the reality is that we are trying to address what has been an endemic problem almost since the beginning of man, which is the idea that equality um, has been elusive. Um, there have always been class structures, and there have always been people who've been in charge, and often many of those people oppressed um, those who were not in charge. And even though there have been revolutions where um, communities have... Uh, been able to free themselves to a certain level. Um, what winds up happening is that either uh, the new structures or the economic incentives or whatever it is winds up with that stratification again, um, oftentimes not leading to the kinds of plurality of equality that we'd like to see. And so what all that is saying is that if our goal is to create a more free, more just, more equal society, then we have to make sure that our revolution points in that direction, that all of our innovations are directed at producing that end, and that we're not satisfied with things that get part of the way there unless we're clear that they're leading to the ultimate goal. Um, I think in education, we're often satisfied with this is much better than what they had before, um, as opposed to asking, is this actually an innovation that is a life-changing innovation? Does it change the trajectory of someone's life? Does it uh, allow them to have the opportunity for economic and social mobility? Does it give them reason to believe that their life is going to be fundamentally different, that they're going to be fundamentally more free, and that they have a, a part to play in change, solving the biggest problems in the world and also leading the civil society in which they live? And if we can focus our innovations and in education on creating young people, old people alike, who believe that, that that's what they're a part of and in fact deliver on it, then we'll have a fundamentally different outcome than we've ever had before. And it'll be something that I don't think we've ever seen before in the world. Mm -hmm. It makes me think about that. It reminds me that the cycle of innovation is not any one given point. It's not one piece of technology. It's not one thing that we do, but rather a consistent cycle of, of innovating, developing, evaluating, and testing anew. That's Let exactly me. right. Um, can, can we stay on that for just one second? Absolutely. Um, because you, point, you pointed out something that I think is also very important for policymakers to recognize. The, uh, we say all the time that it's, there are no silver bullets. And I, I think that it's really important to remember that the likelihood of dramatic improvement over time will come from systems of continuous improvement building incrementally on the last breakthrough versus individual one-off uh, breakthroughs. It, it just, that has just been proven over and over again. And so it is as important that policymakers focus on creating the context for continuous improvement and evaluation as it is that they focus on creating the context for um, big ideas to get tried out um, and get access to resources. Um, we're going to save a lot more lives through continuous improvement than we're ever going to save through individual breakthroughs. But those individual breakthroughs are really important. Mm -hmm. You know, I often say on this podcast, I'm a survivor of the New York City public education system. And, and I say that because it really grounds the conversations I try to have with people like, like leaders like you, Jim, about 
the realities and about the opportunities for for change, especially because we have such a large audience of of, uh, of future leaders. So I just I really appreciate the fresh perspective you are offering uh, to to an age old problem that we've all uh, suffered from. I want to ask you what is what will success look like um, for the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative under your leadership? What what will we all look to to say? Oh yeah, you know Jim is is leading change. He's being successful. The initiative is accomplishing what it's setting out to do. So I mean, I think uh, in the coming months we'll be a lot more specific. But here's here's what I'll say now. Um, we're a lot of people talk about improving education, and they're really mashing together a number of things: teaching. I said this earlier: teaching, learning. They're also talking about organizational norms and the way schools are organized or governed. They're talking about policies around them. They're talking about politics, um, and all of those things get mashed together. Uh, I think that um, that has been a challenge for ed reform in general. And that what we're going to try and do is to lean really heavily into focusing on how do you actually improve learning and teaching? How do you enable teachers to do the work that they have gotten into the sector to do, which is, in most cases, to change lives? Um, And how do you make the day-to-day job of both the learner and the teacher much easier to access the resources that not only allow them to be successful, but allow them to be engaged and excited about what they're doing? So... If you start to see um, learning environments and learning experiences that produce very different outcomes, whether it's at the level of engagement or, or the pace and or the depth of which students learn, that you see them being applied in multiple environments, whether those are with kids who are perceived as gifted or kids who are perceived as having significant developmental needs, and yet those kids' needs are all seen to be being met, if you see these these kinds of experiences, not in onesie twosies, but being spread across thousands and ultimately tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of millions of folks, then you'll know we're on the right track. Um, and that's what we're aspiring to. Now, as I said, we recognize that these kinds of new tools and solutions and practices, they don't happen in isolation. They happen in the context of an ecosystem. There's an enabling environment that has to be in place for that to happen, and we won't ignore that. But... It's all about how you actually change the day-to-day life and experience of a young person and give them a new sense of opportunity and let them see a different path for themselves and that path being real. Um, And so that's how you know if we're successful. I know that's high level, but I have to stay there for now. I really appreciate it. The, you know, you, because you've, you've led, because you've, you've been a leader in education in, in in each of the sectors, You, you have led big federal initiatives at the U.S. Department of Education. You have uh, been in the philanthropy sector. Now at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, you've also been in the private sector. Where does change actually sit in this, uh, in this space? Or, or let me ask that question differently. Where, where is the place where you think that the most change can be driven from? Is it government, private sector, philanthropy, or, or, um, or other in schools? See, this is, this is the classic and both, not either or question. Mm-hmm. The reality is that every sector has a role to play. It is, every role is actually going to be critically important. We are, as I've said before, trying to create a level of change that we've never seen before. 
government provides resources and context that determines how everything else is going to happen. The business sector um, is known for its ability to rapidly innovate and scale. The nonprofit sector is known for its focus on mission alignment and the ability to meet the needs of folks who others might otherwise overlook. All of those things are critically important, and all of them are going to be necessary for creating an education system that's fundamentally different, that embraces innovation, that meets the needs of all kids, and produces tremendously uh, tremendous outcomes. And so where the, where the most change can happen is at the intersection of those three, and that's why I was so excited to come to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative because uh, Mark and Priscilla, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Dr. Priscilla Chan, were so clear that it was a uh, use all the tools at your disposal to do the things that are necessary to move the system in the right direction and to meet the needs of the individual students. And so let me give you a classic example here. Um, lots of people focus on the words of personalized learning, um, and it's, it's actually moving very quickly through the sector. Uh, my contention, and the same with uh, uh, Mark and, and Priscilla, is that you can't say that you are going to personalize education without understanding the status of the learner. That includes their physical, social, emotional, uh, behavioral status, uh, because those things, through research we know, interact with every learning experience. And so the question is, do we have the ability to not only diagnose, but to accommodate, and then where possible, address those uh, conditions for students so they can maximize that learning experience? Um, a lot of people might not think that that's a thing that is a part of the innovation ecosystem for personalized learning. Um, when you look at how it's going to be solved, it has to be solved at that place where social services, be they provided by nonprofit providers or for-profit providers, or um, but almost always with government resources, are going to be provided. And it is how you bring together the three sectors to meet an, an, an underserved need of the community we're trying to serve. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Jim, who's getting it right these days? Who are kind of your, your one or two places of, of brightness that you look to to inspire what you're trying to lead? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I see um, sources of, of inspiration everywhere. I see uh, when I when I good my, my good friend Kaya Henderson is just stepping down from working in, in D.C. and I think that uh, D.C. is far from uh, an exemplar nationally of uh, school system, of the kind of school systems we want to have, but is one of the fastest improving districts in the country, which is a question that people had. They had the question: Can you actually take a large urban district and make it make it move quickly to get better? And she's demonstrated that that's possible. I look over at my close colleague now, Diane Tavner, at some of the public schools, where she has taken what was a single school innovation of creating an environment where students could feel like they owned and led their education and turn it into a platform that allows other schools to do the same as well through the Summit Personalized Learning Platform. Um, this question of whether or not you can create a school environment that works for kids, that has a broader definition of success, that goes beyond test scores to say, on these other dimensions that we know make kids successful, can it help create those kinds of kids? Yes, it can. And can you actually take those practices and codify them and support them with systems in a way that lets them travel to other schools um, in ways that are, are different from um, uh, what we typically do with professional development? So you have a higher chance of success? Yes, you can. I go to the military, and I see kids that we have struggled to serve well in our public school systems, Mm -hmm. and I see them going through training programs that are teaching them to be 
fantastic IT professionals in less than a year, uh, where they are performing at the levels expected of folks that are five to seven years into their profession. And I go, wow, they are once again demonstrating what is possible to us. So I look all around and I see sources of inspiration. What I don't see is our, uh, us often pulling those things into an integrated system that serves all kids well. And that's where I want us to go. Absolutely. I want to ask you a little, just spend a few minutes talking about my brother's keep, uh, Keeper Initiative as well, the President's Initiative that you are founding executive uh, director of. Um, what will we see from, from my brother's Keeper over the next few years, especially as, a, as we now have a President Obama who will be a very young ex-president um, and, of course, I'm sure still passionate about, uh, about delivering on its promise? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think the president was very clear that this was not only something he felt was a formal responsibility of his, but it was a personal commitment of his, and that we'll continue to see that commitment throughout his life. I think that um, that we've had the My Brother's Keeper Alliance, which is a nonprofit entity that sits outside of the administration, was established, and that it has begun to do work in communities around the country trying to put in place, support those communities that have adopted the My Brother's Keeper framework that takes that cradle to college and career look at young people's lives and says, how do you intervene at those milestones that matter most? And you see mayors across the country continue to try and drive that work. And I think you're going to continue to see community at the community level, communities taking on this work and moving it forward. I think you're seeing nonprofits and uh, foundations that have aligned themselves with the initiative, um, both because they see it as a way to pursue their broader efforts, right? I mean, uh, my brother's keeper focused on young men of color, uh, but the reality is that the same milestones are important for not only other vulnerable populations, but frankly, almost every young person going through life. It's just a question of how many headwinds you have on the path there uh, drives how much support you need as you're making, making that path. And so you're seeing communities and foundations and others that recognize that this framework is one for serving all of their youth well lean in because they know that boys and young men of color in particular need uh, more intervention in some cases and different kinds of intervention in some cases in order to be successful uh, than many of their other kids. And so I think you're starting to see people grounded in the science, grounded in the research, and then grounding in good practice, see this as a way to make progress, period, not just because it happens to be the president's initiative. And I think that bodes well for my brother's keeper over the long term. In the meantime, I, 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 like everyone else, am waiting to see what this president is going to do uh, when he leaves office. And I think um, he is going to take a much-deserved break, but I have no doubt that he's going to come back to do transformative work. Absolutely. You know, Jim, all of us who have who've had a good mentor, a good influence on our lives, um, look back and say, gosh, that, that if it was mentorship officially or if it was guidance or someone I just went to to say, hey, I'm trying to figure out how to get from here to there, um, that, that person made a big difference. Who are those people in, in your lives? Who, are, who has mentored you? Well, I mean, I'd be, I'd be uh, silly not to start with my parents. Um, uh, my parents worked really hard to provide me with opportunity, and uh, they both set an incredible example. Um, and my my uh, mom showed me things that I probably never would have seen before. My dad uh, uh, recognized that his background had not exposed him to a lot of things, and so he just pushed me to explore um, and to go to other people who could answer questions that he couldn't answer. Um, I had teachers along the way, both 
with positives instead of negatives instead of who pushed me along the way <laughs> um, and who helped and guided me. I had other friends, fathers and mothers who played incredible roles in my life. Um, there was a woman named Naira Long who was like my second mother. Um, she was, uh, she had her own law firm in DC. I'd never seen anything like that before. Um, I remember catching the bus from Southeast DC to Georgetown and going up in the elevator and seeing her name on the wall. And it was, it was a transformative moment for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to Morehouse for undergrad and there were professors there, um, who, uh, were, were, uh, had high expectations. I'll put it that way. And, uh, were not ones to tolerate any, any sense that you were slacking off. I remember one in particular, Dr. Marcellus Barksdale, um, who, uh, uh, after having fussed with me basically through the entire semester in his history class, I finally performed the way that he thought I could um, on his final exam, and he wrote me a note that I, I have kept to this day. Um, so many, many people throughout my life have touched me and helped me along the way. Not often in the formal sense of I'm your mentor and you're my mentee, and so uh, we'll be together. But they pushed me and coached me and guided me, and I've sought them out, and then people have been willing to take the time. Um, there's one senior executive who runs, uh, he runs uh, one of the best-known internet companies in the country, and, um, and I would call him a mentor, but I maybe talk to him four times a year. But whenever I reach out, um, within 24 hours, I get my 15 to 20 minutes. And that's meant the world to my progress throughout my career. Who will you look to? Who who will you look to as you as you really embark on on this brand new initiative with a ton of resources, a ton of pressure, um, and a big problem to solve? So I mean, the reality is that there are people solving tough problems all over. I mean, uh, there's one one thing I picked up hanging around Silicon Valley thing. People folks is this. this uh, this thing they call Joy's Law. And, and a guy named Joy, he, he basically said, no matter who you are, most of the smartest people in the world don't work for you. Mm. And if you think about that, that's true, which means that all, everywhere you go, there are people who have deep insights about how to do things well, and you can apply them to your work. And so I look across sectors a lot to see who is solving tough problems. I look within education. I look within communities to see how people are having impact and how they're changing lives. Um, and so there's no like one place or one person I look to and say, aha, they've got it. What I look to are collections of people that are all trying to solve hard problems. And then I go see what insight I can gain from them and how they stay inspired um, despite oftentimes what is a very long road to what looks like ultimate success. Mm-hmm. Jim, what, uh, what advice would you give your 24-year-old self? Um, the advice I would give my 24-year-old self is to stay focused on um, what's most important to you. And the reason I say that is that, you know, throughout my life, uh, I started off wanting to be in education, and my family said, no, you need to make some money first, frankly, um, which is how I wound up pursuing engineering. And um, And after that, uh, at 24, I stayed with the technology and I went to business school because I thought that was how I was going to make my ultimate fortune. But I, I kept in the back of my mind that I wanted to be in education long term, which is why I got both a degree in education and a degree in business. And, um, and so 
I think ultimately I did come back to that thing that was most important to me, that my commitment to the community, my commitment to education. I am very hope, glad for the experiences that I had, whether they were in uh, technology and in business, because I think they've given me a level of, of insight and a set of skills that I would not necessarily have picked up um, going through a traditional educator's route. Um, but I think all along the way, you're always at risk that some opportunity will seem too big to turn down, even if it's not the, what you're most passionate about. And so I would just have reminded myself to make some of the decisions I ultimately made um, because I, I, I could not be happier and more fulfilled than I am today. How did you learn to pursue your to pursue your passion over time, though? Like it, uh, just, it seems very uh, strategic and thoughtful that you would choose the degree as you did, not. know ultimately where yeah. you wanted to get to. It wasn't. Yeah. So, so here's the deal. The deal is, I thought that I was going to continue down my path of, uh, you know, I was I had uh, gone to business school, I entered consulting, and. Um, I was four and a half years in. I had made a dramatic, I had an awful first year, but great progress in my last years. I was on path to become a partner. Um, I was going to move to South Africa, and uh, which was a new and growing office. And in the middle of my conversation with a guy who was called my development group leader, he's like your your formal mentor in the process. We were talking about my path to partnership. And he quite innocuously, listening to me lay out my plans for what I was going to do within the firm, said, you know, at a certain point, you have to stop preparing to do things and just do them. And he said that. And I sat there for a second. And then I quit. Hmm. And I didn't quit like right in that meeting. But in my mind, that that moment, literally, I remember that moment that light bulb going off and, and realizing that I was, you know, I had gotten the degree, I was volunteering, I was doing pro bono work, I was doing all of these things and gathering all of these skills for the work I ultimately intended to do. But I needed to start. And so I quit. Two weeks later, I quit. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. Um, Unfortunately, at the time, you could look around for a while to figure out what you were going to do and still be paid. And uh, then I started on my path, which took me into education. And it still wasn't direct, as direct as I thought it would be. So what I would say is that I think that, that people worry too much about each individual move and need to focus more on the direction and making sure that they feel good about the direction that they're moving in and then know when it's time to start. And uh, that doesn't always mean start today, but it does mean that the bar should be clear and achievable for when you're going to make your move to have the impact you ultimately want to have in the world. Now, Jim, I know that you're a dad today. Um, how does How do you balance being a dad with leading all that you're charged with and how, how, how has that changed some of your choices? Um, I don't know that I do a good job of balancing, but I, what I will say about it is that 
uh, I am clear that before saving all the kids in the world, uh, um, I have two of my own and they are my first responsibility. And that if I am successful at everything else I do and I fail at being a good dad to them, then I have failed. And that, that doesn't mean that I'm there all the time, but it means that they feel my presence constantly in their life. It means that they, um, we have uh, a, a relationship where they know they can count on me and they can trust me and that um, they are learning the value system that I think will sustain the well through life. Um, it, it means that uh, I rely heavily on my partner, my wife, Sonia, and I could not do any of the things that I've done um, in these recent years, especially without her uh, and the sacrifices she's been willing to make. Um, I can't, I cannot put into words the gratitude I have for um, what she has been willing to do for me and for us and for this work. Um, but mostly it, it comes down to being able to, to, have my kids get to the point where they can make fun of me for the things that they know I'll say um, <laughs> because they know me that well. They know what I care about that well. Um, and, uh, and that becomes for better or for worse, a part of them. These are exactly the insights that we do this podcast to, to, to capture. So thank you for, uh, for all of that. I just have one last question for you that, um, that I want to want to kind of dive into in the last few minutes that we have here. And what's what's an app, a practice, a routine, a thing that you use on a on the daily basis to keep it all together, to to stay on track, and to stay organized. It's your personal best practice. Uh, so, uh, I think the closest thing I have to that is because I I am I am. Just to be honest, I am notoriously forgetful. <laughs> so so um, I use a lot of things to help me not lose track of things. Um, I find that the new Outlook is actually better than the other apps, and I use it uh, a lot because my, my email like, at this stage of the game has exploded. I use Clear um, to keep track of my to-do list, and I use Mint to make sure I don't blow up my finances. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good endorsement of mint actually <laughs> but i mean uh it keeps track of when everything's coming in and how much is coming in in terms of when the bills need to go out and uh so it's great to have it excellent if you could if you'll allow me one last question if you could describe the the first let's say four or five hours of your your day just walk us through kind of from the moment you wake up till about 10 a.m Okay, so uh, I'm describing the way it works most days now. So now I'm on the I'm in uh, California and my kids are in DC. So I start most mornings at a little uh, about four thirty or so, talking to them while they ride in the school, and then uh, do a little bit of triage uh, on email, uh, which takes me to a little after five five thirty, a little after five thirty get ready to go uh, on my best days, go work out, um, work out till about 10 to 7, get back, usually shower, complete another call with somebody on the East Coast sometime between 7.15 and 
ride into work. Uh, usually there by about eight. Um, and it comprises of me trying to usually use that first hour when it's still slow. The tech, the Valley still works on an engineer schedule. So most folks are showing up and people have long commutes. So most people are not showing up until nine ish. Uh, though we still have a few DC holdovers who get in super early. Uh, so I think it's a great time to just get emails done, mail done, or phone calls. I didn't wind up meeting with, uh, you know, either individual members of my team or having conversations with folks from the outside that I think are doing uh, great work. So I'll, I'll have a conversation with someone who is a system leader or an entrepreneur um, or uh, who has got an idea that was intriguing enough to me to say I want to follow up, which unfortunately for me is way too many ideas. Um, and and uh, that'll take me till mid-morning. Usually then there's some kind of team meeting, if you will. There's a meeting with some small portion of my team that may be focused on school models or uh, whatever the case might be, or the whole team, or other members of the leadership team at Chan Zuckerberg. Um, and then there's individual members with individual team members, meetings with individual team members at some point during almost every day. Um, I know I'm still in a very deep learning mode, so I'm reaching out to a lot of advisors or people I've never met before to ask about things that, about which I'm unfamiliar. Um, and so I spend uh, not just learning about specific opportunities, but learning about things I don't know about probably, I'd say, an hour almost every day. I think that's fair. Uh, I usually try to take a break around 4.30, 5 o'clock, because that's almost bedtime. So I'm doing FaceTime with uh, the boys then and, and my wife, Sonia. Uh, and that usually lasts, you know, usually about 25, 30 minutes. Um, then to go back into meetings, uh, people are winding up for their commutes. Uh, I then stay on and try to knock out some more email, find some food, um, and then uh, uh, wind up on the phone with, it's a good time to catch. I hate to say this, but I do a lot of recruiting in the late hours of the evening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, people <laughs> I'm interested in talking to, they're usually busy and so am I. And so that winds up happening uh, not infrequently that I'm talking to somebody uh, then uh, either, either that I'm actually recruiting or I'm helping to find a new opportunity. I wind up talking to people as they're in their transitions quite a bit. Um, and then, uh, and then I, probably do reading and uh, like preparation for like the last few hours of the night where I'm uh, and writing, reading, right. If I have serious writing to do, if I have reading, I need to catch up on. And in particular, if there's a meeting the next day that has uh, which almost many meetings do these days have big giant decks. Then I'll, I'll go through that at the end of the day uh, and prep for the next day. Um, so that's it. Excellent. Jim, thank you so much for your generosity of spirit, of insight, just your willingness to, to spend so much time with us. Um, I know that uh, that all of our listeners will really appreciate this, and I, I personally have just appreciated uh, all that I've learned from listening to you over the, the time of this conversation. So thank you. Thank you. You have a great one. Take care. You too. Take care. Like this interview? Subscribe to the Leaders Table podcast on SoundCloud. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. 
Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the Leaders Table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 